0: Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Michael, how have you been in this wonderful festival season?
1: I have been fantastic, Gary. And it's a it's a beautiful, beautiful day down here in the strawberry fields. And it was a beautiful day yesterday. Uh, not a perfect start to the electronic picnic in the Strad Valley, but uh, they've had a lovely time of it now. Although there it, it was a rather beautiful moment where It was the event, this event was cashless this year, very exciting, cashless event, until all the machines on site uh, broke down, and uh, the patrons therefore were reasonably inquiring Well that, did this mean mean they could get free stuff, like free beer and free ice creams, and the things that you buy at uh, festivals, as I understand it, and they were told, well actually no, you can't get free stuff, we will actually take cash now, now that the machines are gone, but not such great weather in the Burning Man, the great cultural event in the United States. And I, I don't know, Gary, about you if you've seen the pictures, maybe you're aware uh, you haven't seen any of it. Um, but I, I kind of don't like the degree which I saw this and felt a kind of a Schadenfreude of <laughs> pleasure of, <laughs> well, it couldn't have the nicer people feel to it, which is completely wrong because I'm sure there are many, many very lovely people, but I don't know. Did you see it? It's turned into an absolute mud, it could turn into sort of. Mad Max the Thunderdome out there.
0: So for those who aren't aware, Burning Man is a massive American festival set in a desert in Nevada. It is kind of hard to describe, Michael. It's very popular with the, with the, um, with the tech sector. It's not quite hippie but it's not very far from it.
1: It's hippie geek.
0: Yeah, and there's burnings of of effigies and, and things like that and, and that sort of thing. I... It is flooded after, Michael, more than half an inch of rain.
1: It's a lot of rain in a very short period of time, Gary. Climate change, you know.
0: One thing that makes it particularly fun is I know someone who goes there. Every year, Michael. Yeah. And it's someone you would probably not expect. It's uh, Grover Norquist, the head of (laughs) Americans for Tax Reform.
1: Grover Norquist goes to Burning Man. Well, no, I am... Yes, I am... Well, OK, I am surprised initially, but I suppose I could. There is a kind of that sort of Western anarchic, weird libertarian God, you know, yeah. why not?
0: For the listeners who aren't aware, Grover Norquist would be considered one of the most powerful yet shadowy uh, figures in the uh, American right. And Michael, not only does he go to... Um, Burning Man, the problem when you meet him is it's nearly impossible to get him to stop talking about fucking Burning Man. (laughs) Really? You meet him, and then within about five minutes, he's just talking about the orgy tent. And you're like, this is just a weird direction, and this guy just really loves Burning Man.
1: That is, uh, that's a worry. (laughs) The the orgy tent, really? (laughs) Frankly, they're two words that together or separately in a sentence I just don't want to hear or use. But there you go. Call
0: me old-fashioned, Michael, but I prefer my orgies to be in a Roman-style villa.
1: I prefer them to be in a Roman villa full stop. It doesn't have to be. I don't want it Roman-style. I want it Roman, and I want it happening sometime around 45 B- forty-five AD, and I don't want mm-hmm. to be within a thousand miles of it.
0: And then the emperor gets annoyed, and there's a false ceiling which gives way, and then everyone gets uh, suffocated under rose petals, the or traditional feathers. way of doing things.
1: Yeah. Was it feathers? Elia Gabalis. Anyway, go on. Yes, lots of fun things happening in the world.
0: So, yes, so we want to go to, into the Electoral Commission and some of the comments uh, that they made. But before that, we wanted to return to something we were talking about last week. Last week, we were talking about uh, grade inflation uh, for the Leaving Cert. And I was saying it didn't really make a lot of sense to me because if you inflate the grades, the courses will uh, adjust correspondingly. So you're hurting the people at the top because you put more competition against them, but they can't inflate their grades any higher, not in any practical sense. So what is the point? Because if the courses adjust, then no one really wins here. Everyone gets more points, but the practical effect is exactly the same. And Michael has been chasing that up over the past week in order to uh, enable him to showcase some level of ignorance on my part. So Michael, what have you found? How embarrassed should I be? (laughs)
1: <laughs> uh, well, we should all be perennially—I don't know—embarrassed, but we should all be ashamed. We should be ashamed just of the of our humanity. I think Kant or somebody like that can't said that. Anyway,
0: I've often thought that, particularly when I go away with you and I see you at a buffet, I think that's a man <laughs> who should be ashamed of himself.
1: That is a vicious, <laughs> uncalled for, and untruthful attack. I am the fucking model of of decorum when it comes to a a buffet Mr. Kavner, who has been known to pile up three if he could get three or four T-bone steaks on the same plate and eat them with his hands would do so God, that's just that's vicious savagery and unnecessary on a Sunday anyway, after that drive-by shooting I the it's a very good it's a it's a it's a lovely story of how somebody goes out to solve a problem, and then creates another problem, and then they and then creates a problem they actually can't find really an effective way of getting out of because they've now created exactly the same problem that they came in to, to solve in the first bit. Okay, let's go back to the long, long, long time ago when there was a thing called COVID. You remember COVID, Gary? Um, which yeah, by the way, COVID. I don't know. Is it the sequel, or is it the second? The second trilogy is on, uh, on its way soon.
0: We had some people in grip who got uh, COVID there during the week, and it just felt very retro.
1: Yeah, my brother, had, my brother got COVID last week, and, uh, which wasn't fun. I and mean, you're all hanging around waiting to see everybody's going to get it. After the glorious, glorious victory of Nevena in the Senior Hurling Club Championship in Wexford, which I'm sure all the, li- the, the listeners will want to hear about, but you can get highlights on YouTube. Uh, we thought the whole team might go down. But well, anyway, last week, uh, so we were talking about this, the great inflation. So I w- went off and talked to a number of people around the gaff. And the thing is, back in COVID days, it was decided that the COVID, the leaving cert before COVID wa- would have been, because it was held under non-COVID standards, would have been an easier leaving cert if you're going to have exactly the same course Exactly the same type of exam and the exactly the same standards of correction. Now the thing is, so what, Gary? The, the, the what? So what is that? Every year, a certain number of students will defer their courses. So you defer your leaving cert. For you can defer for a year, and you don't start. You don't go in the same year as your leaving cert. You you go for the following year. Now uh, that would mean that they would be going in with points this is as i understand i don't see why. anyway you wouldn't just get the course you got the previous year but so because people were deferring that they would be under an advantage so that you had to not you had to sort of lower the floor for those students who were under the uh, the, under the 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 new regime the covid regime now as early uh, this was uh, this was recognized as an issue as back in Three years ago, so people, well, how many, how big a problem was this? Well, in 2020, UCD decided to put, and TCD did as well, all the co- colleges I can't remember, but certainly I remember UCD and TCD did. And I remember that UCD put in a ceiling of a maximum of 5% of admissions would be deferrals, right? Mm-hmm. Now, Gary, I'm sure you have spotted the problem in this system is how do you get out of it? Because if you're going to if you're going to create a lower standard on the basis that because of deferrals from last year would have an advantage over this year if this year's standards were higher than last year's standards, well Gary, throw it out there to the listeners and to yourself what does that mean for the future going forward?
0: so Michael based on what you've've you've, you've told me um. My immediate thought is you could have just taken the people who were going to defer, worked out what the fall in grades was in the next year during COVID, and moved their points down proportionally so they still remained where they would have been um, or where you would have expected them in that COVID year. And yes, you would have had to reduce certain people's points, but as the courses are reactive, no one would have been... Any worse off at all? So is this the case that basically they just didn't want to lower anyone's points, and decided rather than lower a small amount of people's points, it was better to bring everyone else's points up?
1: I think. I think essentially yes. That nobody will. Nobody said that, but I think essentially that because the effective outcome is the same. If you raise the number of points of the people with whom you you do your leaving certain two thousand and nineteen. And you defer to 2020, right? And you had the easier leave. You had a non-COVID leaving. So you come along and they say, well, actually, we're going to bring your points down because we want to make it 11 fl- field." You go, oh, but I got I got 520. I got 520 now you're bringing me down to 480. That's not fair. But well, the thing is, as regards the CEO, as you point out correctly, Gary, it makes effect. It no practical effective difference if you, instead of bringing that person down to 480 you bring everybody else who was at 480 up to 520 the distribution remains the same as we said last week the leaving cert is fundamentally now just a sorting system it's a sorting mechanism for allocating places in third level colleges so and it's based, and those results are based on the distribu- the distribution connection between the, applic- the application to x number of courses and the students apply so if 5000 people apply for medicine and there are 500 places well then you pick the top 500 and that probably means the top 500 will have in fact 625 points away you go it's not really complicated the problem is we are now stuck with the system where this is now an infinite infinite loop which you could have got out of if as you say at the beginning you'd simply brought down the previous years of and then let the thing go but then you would have seen stories, I'm I'm fairly sure, you would have seen stories about the disastrous dis- decline in results or something. And maybe they wanted to avoid that. But anyway, the consequence is we are now facing... The, now, Simon Harris has come out and Simon has said that from next year, we should see the uh removal of grade inflation that the abandonment of grade inflation or at least official endorsed uh, grade inflation first of all i think gary i would point out i like the use of the word should next year should say it and secondly, i don't know how you justify it once you've introduced this snake into the cabin well you're always going to have last years what well, what if, if 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 there's no grade inflation next year that means that the people who did this year who defer for next year are going to be under a significant advantage unless of course they were relying on uh, honors maths by whereby hangs a tail because of course honors maths was the only subject where we saw not great inflation but significant deflation this year because the paper was very very hard and even though they tried their very level best to correct the paper in a nice and sympathetic fashion They couldn't get the figures up because it was just too hard.
0: No, I mean, on that basis, what they have done is created a scenario where they have the same problem they had during COVID every year. Yes. With people uh, deferring and having an advantage from it. And either you, what I suspect will happen eventually, Michael, is that we will just decide, we're just not going to do anything about that. And we'll stop the grade inflation and just allow people to have the advantage which arguably is something we should have just done during COVID anyway.
1: Oh, yeah, I'd absolutely. Bite the bullet. I, mean, big. I think this is a classic example of of identifying a problem which was a problem, but wasn't that big a problem. And do you know what? In individual cases, you could have maybe found a way of solution. But rather, in, instead of to solve the problem, you brought in a government program. And as we know, Gary, there's nothing as permanent as a temporary government program. You brought in a solution which is ultimately potentially going to be worse. Than the problem, but here's an interesting thing that came out of the discussion, Gary. About this sideways talking to people who are involved in, say, subjects like, say, uh, geography or um, certainly English, any things requiring, uh, say, essay answers. I, a number of people said to me that there was quite a few comments about that decline in literacy standards, re, a genuine noticeable decline over the COVID period in the literacy of the students. And I said, well, do you mean like the standard of essay writing or something? And he said, no, I mean, but rather even more concerning because stylistic points you can tie up with it. it was noticeable that in student, students capacity to properly answer questions was impaired by their comprehension of the questions. And it wasn't just the odd one, that there were certain questions where words that they wouldn't have considered to be problematic, and indeed words which would have been used during the syllabus, during the course, were used in questions, and they were obviously being consistently misunderstood by uh, a fair tranche of students answering the question. So I think that's that's a worry. And I wonder if the same thing hasn't happened when you're talking about basic skills if the same thing maybe hasn't happened with maths and that was something which also contributed although it was widely agreed that the maths paper was very hard that also that you have had a decline because now gary this will amaze you because you always expect the very best of people a number of teachers said to me you know what the thing about the 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 whole the the corrections and the the COVID experience was yes that there were some students who found it very very difficult there were some, and there was no doubt that that was a problem. There were some who were very stressed and very anxious. There were large numbers, on the other hand, who recognized it as an opportunity to say, oh, I'm so stressed, I'm so terrible, it's, it's awful. Please treat me nice, please be, be nice to me. And that, consequently, that in, there, there has been a significant decline in the work ethic for students who were in the say for years, that were now who are now in the Leaving Cert cycle or doing the Leaving Cert, that simply work ethic kind of disappeared because they th- there was an expectation that they were gonna get special treatment because poor them, it was just awful. There were these young people and their lives were being destroyed by this horrible thing called COVID. They couldn't go to school and socialize and they were in school that wear masks. It was just awful. And th- there was, a, simply for good or for, for good reasons or bad reasons or Im- manipulative reasons just a, 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 a real decline in uh, in work ethic now I'm sure there are other teachers out there so this is nonsense but I had more than one teacher say this to me
0: it's almost like Michael you're saying that the government has introduced a new incentive into the system and the people are responding to it in a way that is negative but overall rational
1: I think that that could be a very close uh, to describing precisely what's happened.
0: It's like when we talk about why are Irish NGOs that do advocacy so bad? Like, why does the Irish Heart Foundation do a, um, a focus group with six people and then launch it as national news attacking an entire sector? Yes. Because they can. Because the Minister for Health will turn up and the Irish Times will cover it and no one will mention that you have done basically no work. So why put the work in? Like, you're just wasting resources. And in that way, Irish NGOs are incredibly efficient, Michael.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't say they're bad. Just wicked.
0: Yes, I think wicked (laughs) is the appropriate way to do it. Did you see the ICCL, Michael? The the balls on these people. You've got to admire it.
1: Yeah, much... Much like a Hereford bull, Gary. Tell the, tell the nice people.
0: So the ICCL has obviously been lobbying for the hate speech laws. Like, on the face of it, why wouldn't yeah. be for
1: a civil liberties organisation. Go on, yeah.
0: Yeah, well, you see, Michael, it's not a civil liberties organisation in general. It's the ICCL, so it is obvious that they would do this. They have been lobbying for hate speech bills to come in. They've been saying a couple of things publicly to make it sound like they have terrible concerns. But the groups associated with them have privately been pushing full steam ahead. So they've been there's a bit of, uh, shall we say, talking out of both sides of the face there. But in their pre-budget submission, Michael, yes. the other shoe drops. And they start talking about the need to fund work that supports the hate speech laws, Michael, for a very small Investment of ten million euro.
1: No, ten million. Oh well, I suppose. You know what, Gary? Ask for ten, get five. Be happy.
0: I mean, we've all agreed that these laws are are, are good things, and obviously, you know, the ICCL has done a lot of work getting it there, and has displayed Michael subject mastery and expertise. So, of <laughs> course, the next reasonable step God, is that preacher. respectable groups. should of course reinforce what will be government policy Michael we wouldn't want government policy to fail so it's not that those groups want millions of euros to support themselves and their friends and their little toadies it's that it's what should happen in order to achieve the outcome and safeguard the outcome that we've all agreed should be done so in that case is we should absolutely pour more money into these people
1: and you absolutely know the kind of programs that they will do They will be programs in support of education and outreach so you can tell the people what hate speech is and how to avoid it you know though i don't know were you ever present in any of those hr cinemas where they where they teach you on how uh employees in the workplace should relate to each other how it's what kind of compliment it is? If it is okay for a man to give to a woman, for example. Janet, good morning. You're looking very professional today, as opposed to Janet. Wow, God, that top really brings out your breasts. Your breasts, which will be an inappropriate thing to say. Or God, your ass looks fantastic in those trousers, Max. So they they will go they will go out and teach us, Gary. They will tell us how to behave. Also, probably they will look. They will. They can use the money to go out and locate the hate groups who are facilitating and spreading the hate speech and they can monitor them because then it'd be very important that you should be mo- I can imagine that you could need 20 30 people to do that constantly on computers maybe with really expensive algorithms to find out here hate words like uh, immigrant or white or paint and you, you could you could And then you have to tour around the country to find these groups. There's lots of work there, Gary. And uh, work that has to be done by somebody.
0: Just to give you some, some of what the ICCL is saying here. They're saying this needs to be done, Michael, to tackle hate crime and extreme hate speech. Because they're of the view that legislation alone isn't enough to tackle the problems. No. And to make the legislation work, the public need to understand what hate crimes and hate speech are and how the new laws will work. And to this end alongside the commencement of laws tackling hate crime and extreme hate speech, which I, li- I like as a line, Michael, because this is directly from the ICCL pre-budget submission. It's no longer laws against hate speech. It's laws against extreme hate speech, which has a sort of an indication to it, Michael, that, um, you know, someone has run some polls. Yeah. and not gotten the answer they wanted. And yeah. now it's become extreme hate speech.
1: So the, the poll, would you support laws to control hate speech? No. Would you con- support laws to control extreme hate speech? Well, extreme hate speech, maybe, yeah. One of the
0: polls that uh, MacIntyre's uh, department directed me to initially when they were on this, and it said it showed a support for hate speech laws, the actual question that had been asked was, and I'm paraphrasing here, but this was the, the tone of it. Would you like to see appropriate action uh, taken in relation to hate crime? Yes. And people yes. said yes.
1: <laughs> that's right. Yeah. I remember.
0: Everyone feels that crime that's should be tackled appropriately. Appropriate. The question is, what is appropriate?
1: God, we're still waiting, though. And I'm sure you're waiting like I am with bated breath for the research uh, to be published. It's going to be very exciting.
0: Oh, well, originally the department told me that was going to be published months ago, and then the researchers told me actually it wasn't going to be published until uh, at least September. So I was actually looking into it there the other day, Michael, to see had it come out. It hasn't yeah. yet. Uh, as soon as it does, I will be having a look at it, and we'll see what happened. But on the on the uh, the money, Michael, the first year they want $2 million. so 500000 for public awareness and education and another 1.5 million on an action plan to tackle hate crime. And that is then going to go into basically an annual stipend for impacted communities.
1: Impacted communities?
0: A a tiny investment, Michael, I think we can all agree, uh, to get the ICCL and people associated with it to the standard of living that they deserve
1: I wonder will that mean that fat people will get money I think probably more there are more fat jokes than probably any other kind of hate crime joke and speaking as a fat man if there's money available you know because as an as a member of an impacted community I, you know, I, I I'm willing to I'm willing to to fill out a short application for it what I think that you
0: have a problem of timing here, Michael, because now with the with the common availability of Zempic, being fat will soon be much like homosexuality a choice
1: but <laughs> well, maybe maybe with zempic is that
0: and... <laughs> is that one of those jokes? I just have to edit out afterwards?
1: I don't know i I thought it was a good one. um it is a, It is a thinker but also, by the way, because it's, it's subversive and satirical at the same time. Uh, the thing is if, if it becomes Ozempic uh, makes it fat, then maybe fatness as it, be, as it becomes a rarer and rarer thing, it might become cool again, you know.
0: I was actually thinking that this might cause us to see a, um, a change in, in class views of this, whereas currently you know, the culture the higher cultural and, and economic classes, view fatness as very common. Yes. Um, and basically as a, as a failure. But as it becomes, again, a choice, do we go back to the old view where fatness is effectively a marker of high status? That could be good fun, couldn't it?
1: Yeah, I think so. Uh, because, you know, we're always looking for things. And I'm aware that in the United States, having a large booty, I believe it's called, is regarded as a sign of uh, female uh there's a group on the television called kardashians i think they're armenians they're successful in something i don't know what but i've heard a lot of discussion about the size of their bottoms and i understand that they have large bottoms so maybe the large bottom is on its way back ala rubens and all those paintings you know the, the, the 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 big ladies and maybe and i don't understand these things gary i hear them i note them i don't understand what they mean I have noticed on the internet in the last six months more discussion of men's bottoms as well and people going to the gym. You know, I think it's, it seems to be like they first they started on, they wanted big biceps and then they wanted big abs or not big abs, but whatever. They wanted abs and then they wanted a big chest. Apparently now they want... Big legs, and part of that comes because with the bigger, it's all very complicated. And well, not complicated, but confusing to a person like me. So maybe, yeah, we are on, on the road to fashionable fatness as opposed to body positivity. Which, Jesus, lads!
0: So we we go on to the the electoral commission now. There's one thing actually I just wanted to touch on before that, Michael. So, yes. we've been sending Ben Scallon to a lot of, um, like a lot. Of um, uh, press events with the government ministers the last while trying to get as as much uh, use out of it as we can because we started to see situations where uh, invites to certain events, Michael, seem to have been should we say people have forgotten to send them to Gript?
1: Oh, that's unfortunate I'm sure an intern was sacked, Gary
0: I'm sure, with a name that sounds at least moderately believable yeah but um, it's been wonderful to see how people, ministers react to an actual question, like a question that is perhaps not you know, a gotcha question, Michael, but requires you to explain yourself in a way that many of these people are not used to. And it's been interesting to see who can actually do it. So we had Simon Harris there during the week, and we had Ben ask him a question about spinal bifida. Simon Harris had previously come out and said that, you know, no child would wait beyond a certain amount. I think it was six months for yes. treatment of spinal bifida and that, it, you know, it was a shame, but he was giving a guarantee. Obviously, that guarantee had been met. So we asked Ben to go and ask him, well, has it been met? Are you still ashamed? And do you accept responsibility even though you're out of the department? And Michael, he gave a very good, considered answer. Now, yes. was it an answer that, you know, accepted full responsibility, eh, that's a different thing. A good answer and a, she was a very open and honest answer and not the same thing. But you compare that to the way, let's say, Minister Catherine Martin dealt with the question of what is a woman?
1: Oh, car crash. I think another on another stage, it may have, I think it was the same in the same set of questions, but I think I saw her answer uh, a connected question, which was, that's not relevant, in response to uh, the proposals about a referendum, which was going to remove the word "woman" from the constitution in the name of equality. And then, what is what is a woman? oh that's not relevant. No. yeah
0: So that that was her opener. It's not relevant. And then when pushed, was that you know it hasn't been signed off on the exact wording. <laughs> and you're sort of a I, a simple government minister, cannot answer such a complicated question. Without the full apparatus of the state having told me what the correct answer is, unfortunately, Ben did not get the follow-on question I had asked him to put in. And the, way, the way we do this, Michael, is I said, Now, Ben, if she struggles, like she cannot answer the question, try and get this in as a follow-on. And it's very simple. It's, can a man give birth to a child? Because I just want to see what she does.
1: ha! <laughs> Well, I think that, that I think Ben should be sent along with that anyway. I, I think we should somewhere between now and Christmas. I want to hear Ben Scallon ask that, and I want. I don't know. Is it more fun to ask it of a man or a woman with children? It's fun both ways, you know. Go with see, it the problem. The want. problem
0: is the ministers. You really want to ask questions like that. Appear so v- infrequently before the press, like Roderick Gorman does. Does. Very, very little in front of the press. Um, our dear minister for education is basically entirely absent, and there's loads of stuff you want to ask them. Like I want to ask Roderick O'Gorman about the problems with um, the um, with crashes. There's a load of stuff happening there where negotiations are seem to be on the verge of collapse, and part of it seems to be due to personal things that Roderick Gorman has said uh, in these meetings to these people that they've thought were offensive. And insulting but he's never going to appear so you don't get to ask these questions but of the people we've talked to, the most competent in response to answering a question are Simon Harris and Dara O'Brien and they are as someone who is obviously not a great fan of Simon Harris he is far far more competent uh, both in relation to answering these questions and just knowing his brief than most of his peers i think it's pretty obvious he is his leadership bid for Finnegale is simply better than his opponents, partially because McEntee spectacularly self-imploded. That was just a wonderful failure to launch.
1: McInty has in, in uh, has effectively self-immolated. Now, I think the concatenation of circumstances around being minister for justice probably adds to this, but my suspicion is. That, uh, however lovely a lady, all right, <laughs> what was that Father Ted thing? No, we won't. However, lo- she, I, I suspect that she was going to be exposed in any kind of challenging cabinet position anyway. The rest, it's, right now, right now, I don't know who you could see that would put it up to Harris. And we con- I mean, were talking about the Electoral Commission, we're talking about uh, the noise around it rather than the outcomes. But even the outcomes, I think, have created all sorts of interesting opportunities. And whether or not Fine Gael, who are up two points in the poll, and F- Fianna Fáil, who are sta- static, can survive in rural Ireland will make a large difference. Simon will be fine, because Simon is effectively in the... Well, no, he's not effectively, in the. he's in the pale. But he's in the part of the pale that is even sort of virtually, virtually South Dublin, culturally. So Simon won't be affected by any kind of bloodbath uh, when the farmers come for Finnegale with the pitchforks and the firebrands. So say, for example, somebody like um, Heather Humphreys was to emerge from the pack of a certain kind of cultural his, historical heritage for Finnegale. I think that the, kind, the, the, the support for her in the parliamentary party is going to be decimated. Assuming, assuming that uh, Leo stays till the next election. But yeah, he's looking, right now I think he looks nailed on.
0: Yeah, I, and to be fair to him, um, as I said, as someone who says many unpleasant things about Simon Harris, he's just better than a lot of his competition.
1: And do you know what else, Gary? He has got better. He's a lot better than he was two years ago, three years ago.
0: I think the interesting question is, I mean, I remember Simon Harris was years ago described to me as a uh, shadow in the shape of a man made entirely of ambition.
1: Yes, I remember. I rem- that I, I think is, is
0: generally a fair description. The question I think is if Harris actually gets the leadership and of the party and the country, whether or not he's actually an effective Shock. Because if he decides that the thing that will actually keep me here is running the country effectively, as opposed to the current approach, which is the thing that will keep us here, is doing as little as possible. And then, you know, just hoping that's enough. He could actually be quite an effective Thishuk. The question, of course, is effective in what way?
1: It's different for Leo. Leo is Thishuk. He's going to be Thishuk until he isn't Thishuk. And nothing that happens bar an actual revolution and blood on the streets is going to affect his capacity to go around being Taoiseach. So I don't think Leo particularly gives a damn about how well or how badly he does it. I think he might care about what some of his friends think, you know, that he was absolutely breaking it. But let's face it, you can detach yourself from it and just say to the NGOs and to the civil service, lads, you go on and run the country. Or you can even say to Michal Martin, Michal, could you do it this week? I don't have the feeling, I never had the feeling that Leo was particularly a party man, that he had any deep kind of emotion or sentimental attachment to Fine Gael as a party, which means that he doesn't really care about party building or the or what he's going to leave behind him for the rest, for Fine Gael, for the next leader and how that's going to affect the party into the future. So, I think Leo's just, Leo's the kind of man who's got a job but he's there for the position not for the work. You know, it's, um, he he wants the position but not the, he doesn't really care about the power because he doesn't really want to have the responsibility that goes with it. Harris, well, we shall see. We shall see. Many a slip, twigs cup and lip. So,
0: on the Electoral Commission, we had uh, we had Ben down at the Electoral Commission. He was talking to uh, Art Omani, who is the, um, he's the managing director of the Electoral Commission. And they were asking them about how the entity can aim to regulate what is effectively truth. Because the Electoral Commission is going to have broad-ranging powers in relation to misinformation and disinformation, particularly during election cycles. I think the the one that caught most people's attention, I think, was um, Justice uh, Marie Baker, who is the chairperson of the commission. And she made a couple of comments about how we will all need to become philosophers, which I know annoyed a number of people, but she's absolutely right. If you're trying to judge the truthfulness of certain statements where there's ambiguity and you're trying to decide, was that a statement of fact or is that an opinion? What is the actual line here? There's always going to be a lot of a of a grey zone where people basically have to just decide on a case-by-case basis, which I think is one of the strongest arguments for this sort of work not to happen, particularly in a way where the government elects people and it's unclear, Michael, to what extent this is going to be a black box. And to what extent everything is going to be open. The commission is allowed, um, under the legislation that, that creates it to, to make certain things public, but they don't have to make those things public. And we don't know which way it's going to be. But I think the other one was, um, she said we're going to have to deal, learn to deal with the balance between the right to freedom of expression and the right of persons not to be misinformed
1: baffled me genuinely not rhetorically I, I
0: would point out as you may have guessed from the title that justice baker is on the supreme court yes and so you would imagine michael has an understanding of the constitution above most people in the country
1: she may even ever she may he even read read all of it and, and i have indeed read all of it which would probably qualify me to be, be a supreme court justice I and I went back and read it again, and I I can find some kind of a a free speech bit in it, you know, but association and protests and gatherings and all sorts of yucks. I, I, what's the language again? A right to be protected from disinformation. Or misinformation. Uh, we're
0: going to have to learn how to deal with the balance between the right to freedom of expression on the one hand and on the other hand, the right of persons not to be misinformed.
1: The right of persons not to be misinformed. And now, Gary, I think just for the po- I, 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 maybe a subtle distinction, n- misinformed, not disinformed, misinformed. I, I, Honest to God, I don't know how the hell you can drag that one out of your arse. Because, okay... Here, like in the United States and many other countries with written constitutions, we now have established that there is a theory of unenumerated rights. Okay, That there are rights which, the, which we derive from our constitution, but are not explicitly present on a plain text reading of the constitution. So these are rights which are found, in the, they say, in the penumbra of the constitution, in the shadows. So if you go into, the, you can find, or the court has found a right to bodily privacy, a right to bodily integrity and a, bo- a right to privacy in the constitution, even though those words don't appear. I don't think that even the most creative lawyer, Gary, delving into the, the, the faintest shadows of the penumbra of the Irish Constitution could find a right to protect from misinformation. It, it's a bizarre notion. And If you imagine that the contest between rights, because there are always going to be situations where you have rights in conflict, but then, Isaiah Berlin, we recognise that there are hierarchies of rights, that some rights are more substantial, more vital, more important to the functioning of uh, a democracy or to the flourishing of a human being, and those rights get precedence. And if you imagine that you have two rights and you put them on a seesaw, I'm going to say, Gary, the right to freedom of expression versus the right not to be misinformed is a bit like, on one hand, putting, putting a toddler on the seesaw on one side and putting Keen Healy on the other side. The right to free expression is such a foundational, fundamental, central right, both for human writing, for economic activity, by the way. Because, as Moynihan pointed out, when the central, the, the central thing that separated the success of the West from the failure of the Communist East was the recognition of the value of the freedom of the movement of information, but also for the functioning of a democracy. I also, what is I ask this neutrally, and I, give me your opinion, your your personal Gary Gary opinion. What does misinformation? How do you decide? what is misinformation, and what is simply a position or an opinion that you do not agree with. How do you make that distinction?
0: Well, that has always been the problem. I mean, disinformation is, in some senses, easier because disinformation is deliberately crafted to be false. It is...
1: It's intentional, yeah. uh,
0: Misinformation, I remember years ago when the misinformation and disinformation industry was basically just winding up and starting to get ready. And they were talking about how this was in relation to the American um, election. I think it was the, the 2016 election. Uh, it could have been earlier, actually. And they were talking about how the there was so much more misinformation on the Republican side. Yeah. But when I went through the list of things that they had listed as misinformation, nearly every single one was an opinion piece. And it's very, very easy to simply say, well, putting forward that opinion, like saying something like immigration is too high, is misinformation, and then you justify it by saying, well, we have this amount of capacity and we haven't hit it, ignoring the fact that what has been said is fundamentally an opinion. And that, I think, is... is It will be very easy to to use definitions like that as a weapon. One problem I actually do have with the Electoral Commission that I don't have with most other entities is this because they have a job to do with electoral integrity and misinformation and disinformation now. About, and, and Europe is moving in the direction of giving more and more powers to groups like the Electoral Commission. In Ireland, we tend to staff these groups largely with people from who have worked in politics or uh, government, Michael.
1: Yeah, or the NGO sector
0: or the NGO sector, or civil society. And in a part, that's absolutely understandable, because these people tend to have a degree of expertise, or at least accepted expertise in this area. But if you are going to put something together to oversee politicians, and the Chief Executive Officer is the previous Secretary General to the President, and has worked in the Houses of the Oireachtas for over 20 years, and has involvements with certain political parties and with no people in them what happens when you're asked to look at misinformation coming from political parties yes and i'm not one of those people who think that you know if you've worked in government of the oireachtas you shouldn't be put on boards or you shouldn't be allowed to run things like this i think in most part that's just the way it's going to happen because in relation to this this is a very specific thing and i'm still not quite clear what the oversight is
1: i think there are all sorts of i the, the staffing it seems to me is inevitably going to be that like that oversight is is another issue but when you, when when it, it gets into the business of deciding of becoming this arbiter of what is misinformation i think you're getting into genuinely dangerous territory because i think you're setting yourself a task which is actually impossible the most I think a lot I think where a lot of people are concerned is because of our direct experience of what was going on and the kinds of discourses that happened. And I think this is where this has been driven from during the COVID period. Now, let's take masks, Gary, right? And I'm not I'm this is not about the substantive issue as it were, about masks. But you and I were, I would say, moderately positive about mask wearing. Uh, and I think the the study that we probably felt was the most interesting that was done in time was the large scale study done in Bangladesh. But we did talk about we adverted to the fact that there had been studies done before the outbreak of the pandemic in in Japan, that had indicated that there were not if and there were no significant if any benefits to be derived. Anyway, but just for the sake of clarity, we were pro mask. It's going to be very interesting now to see, as it turns out, what the science tells us about how effective or ineffective the mask wearing was, and certainly uh, outside of small closed enclosed spaces. During the pandemic in Ireland and other places, if somebody went out and, and, and gave the opinion that mask wearing was absolutely ineffective and useless and this was just part of a wider problem where people are just using this as though governments were using these things as a kind of a public virtue signaling but in reality that the, the practical outcomes were were negligible and it may indeed have negative outcomes. I think that a lot and questions regarding like people who said the vaccines were a hundred percent effective against uh, against serious illness. They were a hundred percent effective against more uh, against fatalities. That, that they prevented infection. All these things that were said. And again, we were. I certainly was. I mean, pro vaccine, roll on the vaccine, get it, be happy. Uh, but the science and what the results now are telling us that the the, the, the role of the vaccine was a little bit more nuanced than we were being told people who are speaking about the limits of vaccines or the or the the, the, the uses the not use of the masks that would have i am absolutely certain was in fact labeled at the time and would continue in certain sectors today still be labeled as misinformation and and the kind of misinformation that could actually be controlled because it wasn't just telling you the wrong temperature of, of the water in the sea off corsica if you're going for your holidays it was something that would affect public policy and public health it was dangerous it turns out that it may even have that that misinformation may have been actually correct and i don't know how you can have something which is true and and misinformation but that i i that kind of thing so i don't know how you can in real time make a a judgment call because isn't it without waxing too sort of free speech liberal about it. Isn't it the case, Gary, that it is precisely in situations of crisis that you need to be able to allow space for people to say slightly maybe dangerous and radical things because if nobody else is saying them, what happens if they're right? What happens if you actually need those 10 or 15% cranky people to say, no, 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 you've gone off the rails, lads, this is wrong. This is what's happening. This is the truth. And if if you actually structurally silence those voices you're doing both your democracy but the general health of your society a very serious damage and i don't know what mechanism these people can seriously pretend to have other than an ideological lens to decide what is going to be misinformation and an honest debate
0: one of the other problems you have is that Once you start engaging in this sort of work, people see that you're engaging in this sort of work. And rather than actually pushing down misinformation, it can strengthen it and weaken you. It can make you seem biased, which is why it was probably not a great idea that if this needed to be done, that the Electoral Commission, which does have other important work, should be involved in it, because this has the potential to damage them, particularly because, Michael, as we said, there's a lot of gray space. You're gonna make mistakes.
1: But that's exactly, yeah. That's exactly my point. And what you're saying about the the, the, the reputational damage. The problem is, if they actually get involved in this, they will get something wrong. It will then come out that they got something wrong, and this will just feed in to for some some people's paranoia and many people's lack of trust in the institutions. And it will be, and you will have now basically tainted the rest of your activities and in the eyes of many people politicised it and you will have emptied your, con- your your institution to a degree of the authority it has to speak as a neutral arbiter on these subjects
0: I mean in grips during the week one of the things we were doing was going through the background of every member of the electoral commission on this basis and that's not what you want you don't want a situation where people have to think look into these people so we can see who is who and what they've said and what their policy positions are because they're going to have power over these things. Yeah. I mean, if you were to ask me about fact-checking and what I think the best thing I've seen in fact-checking has been pretty much since the industry started, it would be Twitter's community notes.
1: Excellent. It is really the good.
0: best system I have ever seen to deal with these sort of things for a number of reasons. One, it doesn't dis- it doesn't remove the information. So people are still able to see it and see it in context. Two, there's an internal weighing system where people need to agree on things. And that means I, you know some of the community notes can sometimes be a bit off, but they correct in real time, which is about the best you're going to get with this, and shows that there is feedback if things are incorrect. And I think one of the most important points is, if you think it is unfair or you don't know how it works you can sign up to it, and you can see the internal debate in full that leads to those notes being put on things. And you can also go in and argue for or against it. Too often, I think, with organizations like this, very, very serious organizations, there is a disconnect between the result and what people can see. And that makes the the mistakes you make much much more impactful because people can't work out what happened and they start to think maybe that was deliberate or that could have been deliberate when it could have been a mistake and also you now have the behavioral psychology of an organization particularly with very respectable people michael and not speaking about these people in general, but just organizations like that tend to put a high priority on protecting their reputation, which often translates to making sure people don't realize mistakes were made, yes. which is lethal for a fact-checker. Look at the journal. Look at the journal's reputation because of its fact-checking. Like, it's destroyed its own reputation, at least from, from the people I talked to who would not be in sort of the right-wing bubble, Michael. It's a joke. It's turned itself into a joke because of the way it acted. And that's the danger. And that's probably not something the Electoral Commission should be doing. And this is, again, the government's fault because they set this up this way. Anyway, after that somewhat spirited rant, uh, we will be back next week um, I must close again by saying that there are still some tickets left for the free speech event, which is being held in the RDS on September the 16th. It's uh, I think doors open at half twelve, will be out by about five. There are some new speakers who are going to be announced during the week. I think people will be interested in those speakers, but uh, I'll put a link below in the description of this. If you are interested, tickets are, we, we've actually increased the allocation of tickets, Michael, because we, we were kind of uh, cutting it tight. So there are some tickets available um, at the minute, and I believe we can probably increase the allocation once more. Um, but that's only that's only an extra, maybe 150 tickets. So like, right. don't wait and so miss everybody,
1: out. Everyone should get on there, but for the time being, we'll say ta-ta, go out and enjoy the sunshine because it's a beautiful day. See you next Sunday.
0: All the best.